Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8, if you would. Last week, we finished up chapter 7. And if you remember so far, we've learned that Nehemiah was a great leader. Despite all the opposition he received from outside the community as well as within his own people, he still was able to complete an almost impossible job because God was with him. He built the gates, the walls around Jerusalem. They're finished, and now the people are beginning to trickle in. We talked about it last week. Remember the order of events in Nehemiah's life? He was up in Babylon. The king gave him permission to come and rebuild the walls. He gave him all the materials he needed. Ezra tried to do that a few years ago, but it wasn't successful. When Nehemiah arrived, there's only a few of the Jewish people that were there to help him, and they were the ones that helped him rebuild the gates and the walls. And once those were done, chapter 7 talked about getting all the other folks that were still in Babylon to come on down. The home is built, it's finished, come on down, and it tells us who returned. And if you remember, we kind of closed with the, the list of names. And I mentioned that, and probably you the same way, when you see those genealogies, you kind of skip over those, right? <laughs> when you see all these long, tedious things, you kind of just skim through those. God could have, and I mentioned this last week, God could have just said, a whole bunch of people came back. But he didn't. He listed the tribes, the leaders of the tribes, and we mentioned because people matter to God. The list of names was inclusive, and he wanted us to understand that God cares about people more than he cares about the institution. The walls were built not for the walls. The walls were built to help the people. And so when the people came back, God listened to them by name because people mattered to God. Not only does the Bible say that God knows who you are, but he knows the, what, the numbers of hairs on your head. Some of you have more than others. So now at chapter 8, all the folks have returned, and they're getting ready for the next chapter. Everyone's back. The people that were coming back, they're all back. And I think kind of right now, the church in general is somewhere between chapters 7 and 8, with the quarantines and closings and the nervousness that's going on. Many are starting to come back, starting to trickle back in, and people are getting back into the swing of things, just like those in Babylon were returning to Jerusalem. God gave them a green light to come back, and they did. And God's given us a green light to come back. And we are. And I think for the Jews, it signaled a new beginning for them. A new start, a fresh start. And I think kind of we're experiencing the same thing in the church as well. As well as in society. Things are getting slowly back to normal. So the Jewish people were back. What is the next step? The end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8 tells us the very first thing that happened with the folks. Now if you remember... I, I mentioned this before, and you probably know that when the Bible was written, there were no chapters and verses numbered. You all know that, right? It was just one long story. Man went in and added the chapter breaks and the verses to help us find things easier. Now, the ending of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, I'm not sure how they broke this up, but it's actually one sentence. Chapter 7, verse 31 says this, When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns... That's the end of chapter 7. Chapter 8 begins and finishes that sentence. And it says, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. So not only is it two different verses in the Bible and two different chapters, it's actually one thought. So now we're at the beginning of chapter 8. All the people are gathered in front of the water gate. Once everyone had kind of calmed down, they were settled in, things were unpacked, they're getting into a normal routine, 
part of that routine needed to be the first thing, getting together with God's people, getting together before God. And we mentioned many times before, there's always a meaning and purpose behind what God writes. There's no accidents. There's no things that's thrown in for the sake of throwing them in. It's no coincidence that they assemble at the water gate. You remember we studied our, our gates. The water gate stood for the word of God. There's many things that the Bible talks and compares to water. A few of them are water stands for cleansing. Remember Ephesians 5.26, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. John 15.3 says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So water stands for cleansing. It also stands when it talks about water for drinking, the whole, it, uses, it means the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to teach us. John 7.38, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So water is very significant in that it talks about God's word and how God's word should affect our lives. It should make us be better. It should make us, it gives us a way to live. So there's a reason that they're at the water gate. The first and more, most important thing for the nation of Israel is what? To have God's word taught to them. They had been in Babylon. There's no idea, there's no record of how much they studied God's word, if they knew it, if their generations had passed without knowing it. But the first thing that Nehemiah and Ezra did once they were back, getting them into God's word, it's the very first thing they had to do. The walls were done, people were settled in, material needs were met. Now it's time for the spiritual needs to be met. And the first thing, they get them before God, and that has to be the pattern that Nehemiah wanted to impress upon them. They had been, for 70 years, probably neglecting the things of God. They didn't have the word like they had now. And it's easy for us to get in the pattern of neglecting God because we get busy with everything else in our life, either our devotional life or church life. The word of God will eventually lower itself on our list of priorities if we're not careful. And Jesus actually addressed this with the parable of the sower and the seed. In Matthew 13, 22, it says, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of life and deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. We could be believers, we could love Jesus, but if the things in life come before God and draw us away from God, we become fruitless in God's kingdom. And Nehemiah wanted to make sure that the very first thing they did was get into a routine of learning God's word. So the very first thing they did was gather together. Nehemiah 8.1 continues and says, they, they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Now when he brings out the book of the law, that's probably the first five books, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the law of Moses. <clears throat> Verse two goes on and says, so on the first day of the month, or the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought before the law brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And again, again, the date is not a coincidence, it's not an accident. This particular date was the Jewish New Year. This ninth month, or the seventh month was the Jewish New Year. And during this month, the Jews were commanded to celebrate three things. The Feast of Trumpets was on the first day. They call that Rosh Hashanah now. And it, it describes the rapture. The Feast of Trumpets describes the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. 
So they were to do that on the very first day, which is the first day they were there. The 10th day of that month was the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is what we say it today, or how they say it today. That signifies Christ's atonement for our sins. What God did for them in forgiving sin and overlooking sin, that was the Day of Atonement. We look at Christ's death on the cross as our Day of Atonement, that God forgave us through his blood. And then the Feast of the Tabernacles was on the 15th of that month. Sukkoth, if you look at your calendar. And that's when Jewish men were commanded to return to Jerusalem to worship. And during this time is when Jesus preached this particular sermon. We read the scripture before, John 7, 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. He preached that during the Feast of the Tabernacles when he was walking the earth. And some commentators believe that John referenced this particular feast in John 1, 14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, if you have an older translation, it might say, he tabernacled among us. That's what that word means. So the month was a perfect time to get right with God and make a new beginning. Now, we all make, or may not make anymore, but New Year's resolutions. How many make New Year's resolutions? Beginning of the new year, no one. Because why? You're going to fail, right? But there's always a perfect time to make a new beginning with God. It doesn't have to be January 1. It could be any time. How many know that? Any time is a perfect time to start new with God. Today is a perfect time to start new. What was our vision when we first arrived here in Dover? Anybody remember? What was the the catchphrase or the slogan we had? Man, guys. The Church of New Beginnings, right? Okay, there we go. You all knew that, I know. The truth is, whenever you commit yourself to God, whenever that is, that's a perfect time for a new beginning. Perfect start, slate's clean. I told the kids this morning in youth that whenever you confess your sins to God, it wipes the slate clean. You can start new. Don't look at the past, look at the future. Now is a perfect time for these folks to start. They had three tremendous feasts facing them. New year, a blank slate for them. Now, Nehemiah also called everyone to attend who was able to understand. Now, if you read the New Living Translation, it says men, women, and children who were able to understand. Now, we had the kids from Rockin' here this morning, and I said it was okay for them to stay. I think it's okay to have kids. If they're able to understand what's being said, it's okay to have them in church. When we were in our old church and our kids were little, we would always bring them on Sunday night. And Sunday night, there was never any nursery or anything going on, so they would sit in church with us. Must of their chagrin, they would sit in the back and color and play or whatever, but they were in church. It's okay to have kids in adult church. Verse 3 goes on and says, He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The first thing I want to know is, this seats, what, 200, maybe 200 people? And I have to use a mic for 200 people in a building. I want to know how everyone in that group of thousands heard one guy without a mic. Now, he did stand at the gate. The gate was behind him, and maybe use that as kind of an echo thing, but still, thousands of people were able to hear him when he was reading. And look at the time frame. 
It says from daybreak. When's daybreak? Six o'clock? Seven o'clock? Until noon. So at least five solid hours of church. We started at 10.30. That was 11, 12, 1, 2, 3. Anybody want to stay till 3.30? And for those five hours, all he did was read the law. So what if I sit up here for five hours and just read this book to you? Anybody into that? Don't all jump at once. Oh, Brad will be back there. And they stood for five hours. Verse 4 goes on and says, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Matahiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were hard name, hard name, hard name, hard name. <laughs> now, we assume that these guys were faithful followers of God, that they really were leaders in the community. They really followed God, were hard after God. And they were chosen, obviously, either by Ezra and Nehemiah, or maybe they both got together and, and chose them. Why? Because it's good for people to see you had others supporting you. It's one thing to have one guy preach to you. But if you know that he is supported by other well-respected people, it's easier to listen to what he has to say. Now, the people would have known who these folks were on the platform, and they would have trusted them. And so if they trusted these guys on the platform, then they would trust Nehemiah because they were supporting Nehemiah. I've said before, whenever you buy a book, or a tape or whatever it is you buy and you don't know who the author is, check out who the author is. See who, re- who recommends reading this book. Before I buy anything or anything to read, I wanna see who's supporting this guy. If there's nobody that I know, I might be reluctant to listen. But if he's supported by people that I know and respect and trust, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it. You wanna have people around you that supports you, that others also trust and know. Be careful, I wrote, be careful of someone that you've never heard of. I got two books in the mail, unsolicited, just uh, somebody sent me two books. And uh, I don't, never heard of this, folks, this person before, he lives in Harrisburg somewhere, I guess, and he wanted me to read them. Well, I, I don't know. I might start reading them, but I've gotta be careful when I'm reading them, because I don't know what's in them. It's all, it sounds good, it's about Jesus, you know, the book covers say, but you never know what's in them. So verse five says, Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them and as he opened it, all the people stood up. So, <laughs> as soon as I open this book, it should be an automatic response to stand, right? First thing, Ezra was teaching from the book of the law. It wasn't teaching from anything else. It wasn't any kind of publication. It wasn't any kind of great scholar or anything else. He was teaching only from God's word. The only thing that churches should preach is this. Nothing else. You might reference a quote or something from another publication, but only as it, res- it supports what God's word says. We don't get up and we don't teach from a book. We don't preach from a book. We preach from this book. It's the only thing that any church should do. 
Now, sometimes Paul would quote famous people when he preached, but only to support what he was saying, as an example. Sermons should only focus on God's word because God's word is the only thing that will help you. How many, how many really believe that? When I, when I pray and I put this together, I, I think, Lord, my opinion doesn't matter. My thoughts, whatever I think, doesn't matter because it's not gonna help anybody. The only thing that really helps people is the truth, and they've gotta have the truth. When you read God's word, that's the truth. That's what helps you, not my opinion or thoughts or whatever. You need to know God's word. And when they were reading the book of the law, that's all they were reading. They weren't, I don't think he was even given any commentary. He was just reading what it said. And all the people saw him do it, and they knew what he was preaching from. They could see it was the law. They knew what he was preaching from. They knew it was God's law. And they stood up in respect for what he was saying. Now, we've, we've started this year someone reading God's word before we enter into the music part of our service before worship. And we ask you to stand. We do that because we want you to respect God's word and be standing for the time of worship. Verse six says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. And they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Notice the order of that. Again, no, no accident, no coincidence. There's a pattern. The first thing they did, they responded with enthusiasm and excitement. Praise the Lord, raise their hands, amen, amen. It's okay to get excited in church. It's okay to show exuberance in church. How many know that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to get the worship team to jump up and down. I think some of them are jumping up and down. It's okay to be excited about things of God. But what happens after they were exuberant and after they were excited for the things of God, then they bowed and they worshiped. It went from exuberance to humility. They praised God for who he is. They loved God. They were excited about the things of God. And then they realized how much they needed God and how much they owed him. And what happens? They become humble before God. Now, we call the music part of our service the praise and worship segment because the beginning of it is faster music. It's praise music. We get excited about the things of God. Then the music slows down because we, now we get humble before God. We realize how much we owe God. So there's a reason that we do what we do. It allows us to humble ourselves. When I start worshiping, my head's up. When I'm done worshiping, my head's down because I'm humble before God. I realize how much I owe God for being here. The sacrifice that we understand that Jesus made should humble us and it should allow us to want to worship him. But we should do it humbly. God, I, I'm not worthy of this, but I worship you anyways. And that's exactly what the Levites or the Jewish people were doing. Verse seven goes on, the Levites, Jeshua, Bena, Sherebiah, Jamin, Echib, hard name, hard name, hard name, instructed the people of the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving them meaning so that people could understand what was being read. Now, so Ezra's up on the platform reading from the book of the law, and you had this huge crowd of people, and the priests were going in amongst the crowd, helping to let the people understand what Ezra was saying. Maybe they couldn't hear, maybe they didn't understand, and maybe they needed the priest to kind of interpret for them. That was the priest's job. 
In the Old Testament, the priest's job, the Levite's job, were to teach the people God's word. Deuteronomy 3, 8, about Levi. He said, he teaches your precepts to Jacob and your law to Israel. Malachi 2, 7, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. Preacher's job isn't just to give you information. It's to make sure that God's word is understandable and applicable to your lives. It's not just a bunch of knowledge. How does it apply to me? Now, the manuscripts that Ezra was reading, they were about 1,000 years old at this point. So he's reading from something 1,000 years before this time. And the language had changed. The Hebrew language 1,000 years ago was different than the Hebrew language today. So the Levites had to make sure that the people understood in today's vernacular what was being said. How many of us have a hard time reading the King James, especially the old King James Version? I do. I, I fess up. I, it's hard. Here's an example, one example. 1 Peter 2.12 in the King James. Having your conversation honest among Gentiles. That actually means this. Live such good lives among the pagans. You ever try to read anything from the 1700s? You go to a history class or something from Washington, D.C., and you see those things. You try to read those things? Hard to understand. That's why we have different translations. Not because the Bible has changed, but because language has changed. I got a couple, I looked up a couple of phrases that were popular a while ago. You tell me if you've heard them. Chrome-plated. Now, we think of chrome-plated as a bumper on a car. Chrome-plated actually means, or it used to mean, well-dressed. If someone was chrome-plated, they were well-dressed. Here's one. Classy chassis. That means that person is good-looking. Got a classy chassis. Or more recently, groovy. That's really groovy. Peace, brother. Neato. See how language changes? And that's just in 50, 60 years. This has been a thousand years, so the priests were going around helping them to understand what was being written. The Bible is not just information to know, but a living document designed to change your life. If you could read, if you could memorize the Bible in the original language, but you really didn't know what it said, you, you, read, you memorized it phonetically, and you didn't know really what it meant, memorizing it would help you not at all because it, you're just learning the knowledge. You're not having it change your life. These guys were mingling in the crowd the priests, and they were available to answer questions of the people that were listening because I'm sure some of them either didn't hear it or misunderstood or weren't sure what they were saying. So these, these priests were mingling in the crowd, answering questions and helping the people understand what was being said up front. And I thought about this. That's two examples or different settings that churches use today. You have the corporate setting, which is like we have here, one person talking and everyone else listening. And then you have the small group section, where it's someone maybe leading it, 
but there's interaction, there's talking, it's smaller, you're able to interact with the people that were there. That's exactly what they were doing then, and that's exactly how churches operate today, most of them. And we have that here. We have church, and we have Sunday school, and we have Wednesday night. Sunday school and Wednesday night are meant to be informal, interactive, you talk, we, you know, commits, we have coffee. It's less formal, but you're able to talk and inter- interact as opposed to a church service where it's just one person pontificating to all of you. And I wrote in my notes here, shameless plug for Sunday school here. <laughs> if you're not a part of what we do on Sunday morning in Sunday school or Wednesday night, it is a great time to interact and make acquaintances, friends. The church I came from, it was a larger church, so you had Sunday school classes that actually became a church within a church. We had a, we had a couple of classes that if someone in that class got sick, the teacher would go visit them in the hospital. They would have their own little class parties. They would do things. That was their core group. That was their small group in our church, and that's how small groups, and that's how you build your friendships, not so much in a corporate setting, but in a small group setting. My wife is still best friends with people she worked with in the nursery 35 years ago. You know, because they made their friendships in the nursery. They had kids together in the nursery. If you're not part of that, you're missing out on something that God wants to do. Verse 9 says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listen to the words of the law. How many of you, when you read God's word or you hear a sermon or something, you feel guilty, convicted? You realize, talking about me. We hear something that shows us that we're sinning in one area of our life and we feel guilty about it. Well, that's partly good because that's what God's word is supposed to do. It's supposed to convict you. Romans 3.20 says, Rather... Through the law, we become conscious of sin. So if that's all you know of God's word and you feel guilty, now you walk around with condemnation. But to know the rest of God's word, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, that's good, right? We know that if we sin, the wages is death. But the rest of that sentence says, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So instead of weeping about our sin, we should be rejoicing in the fact that when we confess it, it's forgotten. It's forgotten. I was trying to tell the teens today that the Holy Spirit will convict you if you're doing something wrong. You'll you'll feel that guilt. And if you, at that point, if you confess it from your heart and you forsake it, you repent of it, and you don't do it anymore, if you still feel guilty, that is now condemnation from the enemy. Because if you've forgiven it, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you still feel guilty, it's the enemy heaping condemnation on you. How many understand that? The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there is thou therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. You ask God to forgive you from your heart and you repent of it, God forgets it. Gone, clean slate. I, t- I said to the teens, the enemy loves to tempt you. Man, do this, do this, it's great, it's great, it's great, do this. And the minute you do it, he's the first one condemning you for doing it. We should rejoice in the fact that, man, our sins are forgiven. The things we've done in the past, when you, when you look at your past life, look at my past life, thank you, Jesus, for what you've forgiven me of, what you brought me from. 
So he's telling them, hey, we just celebrated the Day of Atonement. God's taken away your sins now at that point through animal sacrifice. They should be rejoicing in the forgiveness. God delivered them from Babylon. God delivered them from the punishment that was coming. God delivered them and gave them a brand new start. God delivered us from our sins and punishment that comes with them through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Man, whatever else is happening in your life, you know you have been forgiven. You are clean before God. And if you die right now, you're making it to heaven. That's why we should rejoice. Notice the order of what's happening here. First, they are convicted of sin. When they read the book of the law, the people understood that they were sinners. They realized what they did wrong. And then once they are convicted of that, conviction leads to repentance. You realize what you've done, and now you want to ask God to forgive you. When you do that, after that comes joy, and after that comes celebration. Verse 10, Nehemiah said, Now go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. That should, that should be the closing sentence of any church service. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, because we're all going to go get something to eat after this, right? But if we, come, if we come to church or study God's word because we have to, and you're missing the joy that comes from doing it because you want to. I asked the kids this morning, I said, what would you think if, if mom or dad paid someone to take you on a date? The only reason you're going out was because mom paid them to do it. And they all like, oh. Ugh. I said, well, if you go to church because you're being made to go to church, same thing. You should want to go. You should want to have a relationship with God. You should want to do this from your heart, not because someone's making you do it. I said, how do you think God feels when you come to church? I don't want to be here. I got to be here because mom makes me come. Or I feel like I have to come because someone's making me come. Same thing. We should rejoice when we come into church. And then we should leave even more rejoicing because we realize what God's word means to us. If you come to church and you don't study and you don't know God's word because you don't feel like it, you're missing out on what God says. Psalm 119 says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. You ever read something that you hadn't read before, or maybe something you have read before, but just, it just sticks at you? Like, oh, that's awesome. I never read that before. That's exactly what he's saying. Matthew 13, says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought the field. I think it's Proverbs 25, 2 says, it's the glory of man to conceal an item. It's the glory of God for us to find it. When we read God's, you know, there's times when I read the Bible and I say, God, couldn't you have said this plainer? Couldn't you have made it a little easier to understand all these things? But I think God says, I put it in there in a specific way because I want you to find it. I want you to take some time, study it, and find it. If we delight in God's word as we read it, we should realize that God is speaking directly to you. 
The Bible wasn't written for everybody. It was written for you individually. If you were the only person who needed to be saved, God would have sent his son and given you the word for you. So when we read John 3, 16, for God so loved me, for God so loved me, he gave his only begotten son. The God of the universe has written a love letter for you. I remember when I was in college, you know, way back before we had email or anything like that, we only had mailboxes. In our dorm, we had mailboxes. And man, all of us would run to the mailboxes every day to see if we got a letter from our girlfriend at that time. And every time we, we got a letter, man, we couldn't wait to get home and read it and read it again and read it again and post it and read it tomorrow. And then the next day, you got nothing in the mail. That's how we should look at God's word, man. God's word, here's my love letter to you. Read it because something is in it for you that you need to hear right now. When we leave this morning, we should leave rejoicing when we think about what God's word says about you. We said at the beginning, people matter to God. You matter to God. But the only way you're gonna know that you matter to God is if you read God's word. And yes, the verse says you can leave rejoicing and then go eat choice foods and sweet drinks. But, how do, but why do we go eat? Beside the fact that we're hungry. Better question is, how do we go eat? Verse 12 says again, I'm gonna close with this. Then all the people went away to eat and drink to send portions to their f- of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words. When we go out, if you're going home, if you go out to eat, wherever you're going today, we should go with great joy. We should be in the restaurants with great joy. We should be the happiest people in the restaurant. And I said it before, we need to treat treat the waitresses and waiters the best of any other customer in the place. We should be excited about what God's word says. And the question is, do you understand what God's word says about you? If we understand what God says about you individually, that you matter to him, each one individually matters to God. Not as, a, not as a group, but you. You personally matter to God. And we should leave with great joy. Not joy because church is over, but joy because we understand what God says about me. Man, what does he say about you? For God so loved you. God's word is a letter to you personally. And when he was reading that book to the crowd, he was trying to impress upon them that they mattered and that everything was written in, that book, in the first five books for them. God loved them enough to deliver them back to their town and then give them the word that encourages them. Would you stand this morning? Close your eyes for a moment and bow your heads. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been in this church all your life or a vast majority of your life. Or maybe this is your very first time. We thank you for all the family and friends that came to be part of the water baptism. But the water baptism is only a part of it. Baptism is meant to be a testimony as we sang that song. It's a testimony 
to everyone else what God has already done in these young kids' lives. He's come in, he's made them new, he's forgiven them of their sin, and now they're just showing you externally what God has done internally. And that means you're not here by accident. You may have been invited, you may have come because your kids or your grandkids or somebody you know is getting water baptized. And that's great. We're so glad that you came for that to support them. But there's a bigger purpose in mind. And that purpose was to tell you so you can see in your life what God has done in these young people's lives. That God has delivered them from sin. God has given them a new life, a new chance. Even though they're young, Lord, they have their their life set in front of them. In order to succeed, they want to follow you. And they want you who have witnessed this to do the same. That's the reason for baptism, so that others can see what God's already done. If you're here and you've seen that and you just don't understand what we're talking about, the Bible says that God is here to draw you in, to make you think about things, so that you come to the point in your life where you realize, yes, I'm a sinner like everybody else. And I know that my sin, if I don't confess it, if I don't forgive it, I'm gonna wind up not in heaven. But as we read this morning, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you're here, God wants to extend that forgiveness to you. It's already there. It's placed before you. But like anything else, God does not make you do anything. He offers it freely. Nothing you have to do except come and receive it. The forgiveness is there. The new life is there. The clean slate is there waiting for you. If you want to receive that, you want to start new, you want to have your sins forgiven in a clean slate with God, I want you to raise your hand right now. I want to pray with you. All right. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't think much of yourself. Maybe things have happened in your life to cause your self-esteem to go low. <clears throat> and I want to change that word self-esteem to God-esteem. Because it doesn't matter what other people may think of you. And it really doesn't matter what you think of you. What matters is what God thinks of you. God thinks you're important. God does not think you're a failure. God thinks you have a great future. God has a plan for each one of you. You're God's best friend. You matter. You matter to God. I don't know who's here that needed to hear that, but that's the truth. Whatever you've done in your life, whatever you think isn't worthy of love doesn't matter because God thinks the world of you God cares about you and God wants to be there for you every moment of every day that's why he says cast your cares on me I'll carry them why would he do that if he didn't care for you so I'm going to pray for whoever needed to hear that maybe you're at home and you need to hear that or you're here that God it you matter to God. Father, thank you. We thank you for your word. 
when we distill it down to the simplest terms, it really means you love us. We matter to you. Our lives are important to you. And I pray for each person here this morning that they would really take that truth to their heart, that they would leave rejoicing in the fact that the God of the universe cares specifically about them. Not the corporate body, but them personally. That your Holy Spirit would really show them in a tangible way how much you love them and you care for them. And that they matter to you as insignificant as we might feel on this earth. You care about each one of us. So Lord, I pray when we leave, we leave rejoicing in the fact that the God of the universe cares about me so much that he allowed Jesus to die for me, for me. Father, we, and all we can do is thank you for that, Lord. We've done nothing to deserve it except belief. So Lord, I pray your blessings upon each person as they leave this morning. Allow them to go, as we said, rejoicing in the fact of their salvation and that we matter to you. Father, we love you this morning and we're so, so thankful for your goodness and your love for us. And Lord, I commit each of these folks to you. Go before them, Lord, make their day great, make their week great, and allow them to know in their spirit that you care about them. And Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. Have a tremendous week. Hopefully we'll see you Wednesday. No snow. I'm praying against that. Rebuking it in the name of Jesus.